You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn on The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and business world. Today, our guest is Tanya Allen, the CEO and president of the McKnight Foundation. The McKnight Foundation is a $3 billion foundation headquartered in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Tanya Allen is a leader and a change agent with a passion for co-creating an equitable, sustainable world. In 2021, she became president of the McKnight Foundation after many years at the Skillman Foundation in Detroit, Michigan. Tanya grew up in the Detroit area and went to University of Michigan for undergraduate and graduate work. And I want to welcome you to the show, Tanya. Thank you, Gary. I'm so glad to be here. I really appreciate you and love your podcast. Thank you for that. I have read several of your bios online, but the one thing I never caught in the bios was where you grew up. And Well, I grew up in Detroit. Oh, okay. And one little fun fact about that is that I grew up literally all over the city. And most people who grow up in Detroit grew up in one kind of neighborhood or one area. Um, and it gave me the opportunity to attend about 10 different schools. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And so you must be happy that Michigan won the national football championship. And the Detroit Lions are still in it. <laughs> yeah, you know, Coach Harbaugh said, who's got it better than us? And I have to agree with him. Nobody. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeling pretty ecstatic about Michigan. And I'm still pinching myself about the Lions. You know, yeah. we went through a lot of tough years. I think everybody else was also. I had a dear friend who uh, I ran a synagogue for 17 years in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I had a member who was uh, in his, well into his late 80s. And he was a Red Sox guy. He grew up in New England. He was a Red Sox fan. And I, every year I went to a ball game with him and we, my daughter was three, four years old. We'd go to the ball games together and he loved baseball as I did. And when the Red Sox finally won a world series, I tried to call him, but his phone was off the hook with everybody else calling him because he was now 90 years old and he, people could not believe he was so happy about what happened. So you ended up going to university of Michigan for undergraduate and graduate work. How did you decide your field of study? Oh, so I went to college as a first generation student. And so my ambition was to become a doctor. So I actually, when I finished undergrad, I um, applied to medical school, got in, but didn't think I was ready to work that hard. So I had deferred. And while I deferred, I ended up studying public health and did some work in social work, trying to think about the human side of health. And so that's kind of like what, why I ended up studying what I studied. And it was mostly because I was like seeing where there was kind of human distress, you know, in large numbers and at individual levels and wanting to try and figure out, can I be a, a contributor to like alleviate that distress and to, you know, help build people versus like, um, you know, help them build their right. aspirations versus just kind of like solving problems for them. Did you ever work in the corporate field or you moved into the nonprofit world from the beginning? 
I worked in the nonprofit world my whole career. I've had the great pleasure of like working with a lot of corporate leaders and, you know, and also like serving as an independent director. So I've had to learn corporate ways from the outside in versus the inside out. It's very interesting. I guess in the last 10 years or so, corporate America has started to get more involved in philanthropy. I was, I had the pleasure of knowing all of the Haas family members of Levi Strauss back in the day, and I still am in contact with many of them. And they were one of the early corporations that benefited the public in, 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 their, in their gifts and actually both in diversity issues and in gender issues and everything else. And, and then I also had interaction with Mark Benioff of Salesforce.com. Mm -hmm. And Salesforce also is a great example of corporate philanthropy. Is, is there a, a reason that corporations should get more involved in philanthropic roles? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's good for their business. Fundamentally, it's not just about, I would say, positive press. It's also about like making sure that the community you operate in is more stabilized, that it's actually solving some of these complex, hard problems. So bringing not just philanthropic money to those problems from a corporation is really important. But I also say like, what's the talent that you can bring to these solutions? And then how do you um, incorporate your business operations? Can they also contribute? And so as you asked me, you know, as I talked about, like learning um, corporations from the outside in was basically doing that, working with corporations who had a philanthropic or a civic muscle that they really wanted to flex more and helping them think through like all of the ways that they can show up in coalition with others to be able to do good work. And I, when I was in Detroit, I had a great pleasure to be able to do that with a lot, you know, all of the big companies. And I'm uh, growing that opportunity here uh, in the Twin Cities. I think that corporations, when you can help them see how they can make an impact beyond just giving to nonprofits, that if it's in alignment with their values and their business proposition, most of them are eager to do it. It's just that they need a pathway to be able to do so. Hi, this is Gary Cohn from Painted Rock Advisors and the Road to Philanthropy. We're excited to announce our new program for 2024, the 21st Century Leadership Symposium. This one-year program is designed for leaders of nonprofit organizations, those in the position of executive director, executive management or development director, who are at the top of their nonprofit institutions. The first cohort of the program will begin in April 2024 in Los Angeles and May 2024 online. Please take a look at our program and curriculum that can be found at 21stCenturyLeadershipSymposium.com. That's 21stCenturyLeadershipSymposium.com. We look forward to working with you as we look to help you maintain and improve your nonprofit journey. Thank you. One of the things I did in uh, my past, I was on the board of the San Francisco Food Bank for mm -hmm. about nine years. And... The chief operating officer now is the CEO of the Silicon Valley Food Bank. And I still close with her. And we talked about how the corporations in Silicon Valley bring their employees to the food bank to do work, you know, to separate fruits, separate vegetables, package things up and get involved with the broader public that you use the food bank every day. It's very, very positive. Then there's also the side of the coin. We have some corporations that have been I want to call them bad boys in the area of philanthropy. And they have reputations like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. 
which I have friends and I will never shop at or never go to for a lot of political reasons, but that's because I'm on the left-leaning side of the world. But so, you know, when they do good things, they can also do bad things and, and uh, have to defend themselves in those, in those areas. Yeah, well, I would just say, I think that we often equate that philanthropy is good. Philanthropy can be a tool for good, but it is not automatically good. And right. so um, I think that for those who work in the profession, that's our job is to make sure that it lands for good. That's very well said. Very well said. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, foundation now, uh, the McKnight Foundation. You're one of the largest foundations in the country. I don't know if you're the largest or not. I didn't look that up, but you probably know that. <laughs> but $3 billion or so in assets? Yes. And what areas of, of investing are you involved in? Uh, in the yeah, way? well, so we are one of the larger foundations in the country. And what's really unique about us is that we're a fourth generation, 70-year-old family foundation. And very few of them actually exist in our country. So what's been amazing is that we still have family members who are actively engaged in the work that we're doing. And so I would just share with you that the McKnight Foundation is an amazing organization. It has a long history of really having powerful impact uh, on behalf of the people in Minnesota and across the world. We do our work in three places. Uh, we do it in Minnesota, we do it across the Midwest, and then we do it in multinational places. And our work really consists of, well, let me just anchor you with our mission, which is to advance, adjust, creative, and abundant future where people and planet thrive. And so the way that we approach that is um, through what we call our headlines and our through lines, and that's our racial equity work, as well as our climate action. And so we have a few program areas. So we um, invest deeply in creating vibrant and equitable communities all through Minnesota, as well as really thinking about arts and culture bearers across the state. And then we do climate action work, which is really anchored in our Midwest Climate and Energy Program that goes across seven states. And then our, our global foods work, which is a multinational strategy, um, which is basically in Africa and, and uh, South America. And give me a little uh, example of some of the programs there that you fund. Or the types of programs? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I would say in our Vibrant and Equitable Communities program, we have supported Habitat for Humanity okay. and their efforts to build and increase home ownership throughout the Twin Cities and throughout Minnesota. We support our what we call initiative foundations. These are foundations that we helped establish about 30 years ago. Um, all across the state of um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is basically about helping rural communities organize themselves for economic and social prosperity. And we still support those organizations across the board. And then I would say in our, in our work around climate, some of the things that we've done, we, you know, big supporter of the Energy Foundation, which basically builds out the advocacy infrastructure in the seven states that we care about or that we're working directly in to make sure that policy moves. And so we help support community organizing groups and other advocates. And what I would say over the last couple of years is we've had a huge success, whereas in Minnesota, Michigan, and Illinois, we've had some of the um, best national policy come out of those states to help those states move to a 100% clean energy. 
um, in the next few years. So we funded efforts like that. We funded efforts in Ann Arbor to help them um, create the first kind of like net zero neighborhood. We're in one of, uh, you know, a low income, very diverse community with the aim of showing and creating proof points that we can make a transition to clean energy. And actually, it's going to be beneficial to all of us if we do that. Like people who might not have access to power, who might not have as much access to money and resources, that they can benefit, that this becomes a, a benefit to them um, from a cost perspective that reduces their energy burden and really create wealth for them or more income that allows them to be even more uh, active in their communities and to take care of their families. And we've seen that, you know, microfinancing and micro grants, both in the United States and in third world countries, you know, do really, really well in, in getting people out of or helping them move out of poverty. In one yeah. And, and our work across the globe, we're working directly with farmers in these countries, helping smallholder farmers who are trying to figure out like how to make adjustments in their farms to the climate conditions that are shifting the environment for them. It's pretty right. significantly significant and trying to make sure that, you know, to your point, like they have enough economics to support their families, but also that they um, can make sure that people in their communities have nutritious food. And we do that in conjunction with a lot of the universities and researchers across the world. And so it's really about centering that practical knowledge of farmers right in the front of it and um, spreading that knowledge across uh, their communities. One of the things I did when I worked with the Technion University, the Israeli Technology University, was they had a water research institute. Mm -hmm. and they would send in researchers and, and students into Africa and in the villages and create uh, water systems that would take energy from the sun and, and purify water. Because one of the biggest problems in Africa has been, you know, dysentery related issues to not having clean drinking water. And uh, back then I went and uh, I got it at the time I was, I got a, invited to write a, a grant application to uh, that big foundation in Seattle. Um, we went to try to do food, food distribution in Africa where we would go in help farmers better agriculture systems and techniques to grow better food. Of course, I got turned down for the grant. And then my bosses at the, at the foundation said, you know what, you got in the door, but you didn't get us any money. Which is kind of the standard. standard yeah. Thing. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I've had a couple opportunities to visit Israel. And I think that there's just important innovations, particularly around water that have come out of that. I, I was trying to actually bring that and marry it with places like Flint in the like U.S. that have had water issues, yeah. significant water quality issues. Yeah. I interviewed the other day, which is the podcast that will go online before you, Michael Thatcher of Charity Navigator. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the CEO. We were talking about rating systems and rating nonprofits and rating foundations. And, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, impactful investing and where organizations are going with that. I know you've spoken a lot about impact investing. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy there and the foundation's philosophy on impact investing? Yeah, happy to do that. So as you talked about, we have about a $3 billion endowment and we've made commitments. So this has been an ongoing commitment by the foundation. We've made commitments to become a net zero um, endowment so that our money uh, is working towards the future we want to see and achieve. 
Um, we've also made commitments across our endowment to make sure that we have diverse managers in that. Um, and so what we try, so that's with our general big portfolio that's actively in, you know, in the public and private markets. In addition to that, we've carved out a portion of our endowment that's specifically aimed at more innovative strategies that maybe have not yet been proven in the market to help them align with bringing market sources to help us achieve our mission. So we have funded organizations through our mission impact work where we have helped people who develop commercial districts in neighborhoods and to create community ownership of those districts so that it's a shared ownership and shared prosperity. And then you see families and community members actually purchasing from those and really supporting these commercial districts as a, a way that we've done work. I'll give you another example is we've supported an organization that really helps small businesses or mid-sized businesses that have maybe been family-owned and that, you know, the owner is graying out. Their family doesn't want to pick it up, but the employees want to purchase it. So how do we help them do um, all ownership models and how do you do that at scale? So those are the kinds of things that we might invest in through our impact investment portfolio that really helps move our mission forward in a way and also creates new ways of thinking about how you can use capital where you get both a profit and a good return, you know, a good return from profit right. and from uh, impact. Well, in Los Angeles, in the underserved neighborhoods, we've seen that when families and, and business people in the community have a skin in the game, if you will, or, you know, in, in the game, they are more active to support a community program and support growth in the community and resurgence of that. And that's very, very important. Let's turn to, you talked about diversity for a moment. Let's talk about that. We've had great growth in the early 2000s on DEI and DEI training and all this stuff. And then the last two years, we've had a lot of pushback from probably mostly Southern states, but not necessarily only that, and the Republicans on that. How do you stand on, on defining the benefits of DEI? And obviously we had a Supreme Court situation that did not exactly support that. But tell me about what your views are on that as a foundation or as an individual, as an individual leader. Yeah, well, I'll just say this. You know, after George Floyd was murdered here in Minneapolis, we saw kind of like what some people call this racial reckoning that was happening across the country. And I, what is so interesting about that is that what we know from our own history as Americans is that when something like that happens, you probably have up to seven years before you see a real clawback starting to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just something about, and so when we live in a world that moves a lot faster than it ever has moved before, you see that clawback happening faster. And so knowing that, I think we at the McKnight Foundation have like, you know, we st have stiffened our backbone. Like we know we're going into the eye of the storm, that it, there will be forces that push against us. But we believe that um, making sure that every person is um, able to live into their aspiration is extraordinarily important for our economic future and our growth. So we do this. Um, because we know that, like, in, for, for example, in Minnesota and, and particularly in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities, the majority of growth in, these, in this state, which has always been known to be a pre predominantly white state, 
is being led by people of color. So if we leave those people out of prosperity, we undermine the prosperity of the state. We undermine our ability to have GDP. And so what we're we see this as an economic imperative. And we also see it as a justice imperative. We believe that everybody in this country ought to have opportunity to pursue the American dream. And so we if if we have not been able to do that well, and in many cases we haven't, like, for example, if you look in Minneapolis, just to give you context, we have our, you know, we our goal is to have 70 percent of all many people that live in the Twin Cities to have home ownership. Right now, 77% of white families have owned homes in the region and about 20% of black families and about 40% of Hispanics. So we know that we got to figure out how to address those barriers that are preventing people who actually have aspiration and who are doing the work to get those resources and their families to generate wealth. So we lean in and say that, like, if there's a place where there are barriers that are working against folks, we're going to figure out how to remove those barriers, not work around them, because workarounds are temporary. But how do we actually really systemically remove those barriers and make sure that people have access and that we believe when that access happens, then it really creates a real opportunity for all of us to win. This is, you know, growth allows for us to be able to share the pie. And that's what we believe. We're, we believe this is a, grow, a, a force multiplier in terms of growth. Well, we're coming off of the MLK weekend. And it reminded me, you know, because I was looking at some things and reading some stuff. The synagogue I ran in San Francisco in 1958, Martin Luther King spoke to the synagogue that uh, on a Friday night, because we were very supportive of, of equal rights, civil rights back then. And a lot of our rabbis marched in Selma with him and all those kind of things back then. I think that well, my daughter, when the George Floyd thing hit, my daughter was now 31, but she went on Hollywood Boulevard and marched, you know, on the Black Lives Matter protest marches. And her, her love of the police department changed dramatically over that three month period for a lot of good reasons. And all I said to her was, If you're going to march on Hollywood Boulevard with the crowds, let me give you the name of the best criminal attorney in L.A. just in case (laughs) you need to go from that. Let me. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I mean, we know that like being able to express your opinion is to your point is it's not a crime, but unfortunately it is being shunned. And we think, you know, it's important for everybody to be able to express themselves to contribute to our democracy. That's really important to us at the McKnight Foundation is to protect our democracy in this country and to make sure that people who are furthest away from power actually have access, that their voices are also centered in addition to those who are more power brokers. Right. Very good. I uh, actually grew up in a, in a similar situation as you in the sense that I was the first in my family to go to college, as was my twin brother. We both went to college at the same time, obviously. But we were, we came from a very poor background. We didn't realize until we were in our twenties that the reason we moved so much in, in our teenage years was we were being evicted for not paying rent, you know, from that. So I do a lot of mentoring at my old university of young students and helping guide them into careers because a lot of times they don't have people in their families that can give them direction. So I come from the outside, having been a successful guy over the years, and I can speak to the challenges of growing up and getting my first job and all those things and give them the encouragement they need to, to be successful, uh, which I think is very, very important. 
We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. Back to McKnight, I got a couple of questions. You said earlier that you're kind of like a multi-generation family that's still involved, which is great. There are a number of family foundations around the country that are now adopting spend down policies and ending up liquidating the foundations in 10 years or 15 years. What do you think of the benefits of that versus not doing that? Well, I think if you, as an organization, have a mission that's super clear and you have real investment opportunities to create a change, I think it's a compelling reason for an organization to think about spending more or even spending down. So I think that every foundation at every point should at least face that question to think about it. Like what, you know, what's the value in doing that and what's the disadvantages in doing that? I would say at and and whatever answer you come up with, I think is absolutely fine. But I don't think any of us ought to be idle in doing business the same way we've always done business when the world is changing so rapidly and that we see disintegration happening, you know, socially, civically, politically, economically across our country. And so I would tell you at the McKnight Foundation, our board has wrestled with questions like that themselves, just wondering and curious. And and we have not made any decisions, nor are we like intentionally navigating that question today. But I will tell you that our board decided to do extra spending because we believe the issues around climate and racial equity are so important and that we have to lean in. And particularly thinking about on climate, which reaches, you know, there's no issue that addresses everybody in the world, right? Like it right. shows up on every single right. issue, everything that we're possibly doing. And I think that many of us know that this is an important issue, but we don't know how to make a difference or to make an impact. And sometimes when we hear, I would call them kind of like climate zealots who are telling you basically don't live the way you live today, you know, like that. It, that becomes um, really hard for people to take in and they get locked in and fearful that they can't make the changes. And what we want to encourage people is that like every small change matters, whatever that may be, purchasing an electric car, if you can afford that, or just changing from a gas stove to an electric stove, utilizing the IRA and all of the tax benefits that show up, particularly for families. If a new family is buying a home, if you use the IRA, you can almost outfit your whole house with, with appliances that will save you money. And so we just need to help people understand that. And then that's the same thing around racial equity. To be in the 
town where George Floyd was killed. And that image is marred across our city. It is, you know, it is something that we're being informed by, but we're not defined by that. We really believe that this city cannot, can be a come a place um, of racial opportunity that anybody that comes here, no matter what their race is, that they can have an opportunity to achieve their aspirations, that they can purchase home, they can start a business, they can make investments in community, and that they will be supported in doing that, not only from the philanthropic sector, but from the corporate sector. I think the one thing that's wonderful about the place that we live is that it's strongly civically minded and people are trying to do the right thing. And we are organizing ourselves to be able to do that, as in like the Groundbreak Coalition, which it, the McKnight Foundation is a part of and 17 other organizations who are working to try and figure out how we deal with the racial wealth gap in our our communities. I noticed, I haven't read the article yet, but I read it in the New York Times briefly that I guess St. Paul, Minnesota just elected all women city council. That's right. We're very proud of that. That's very exciting, you know, from that standpoint. Let me, as we get towards the end of the interview here, the, the podcast, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you about the McKnight Foundation or nonprofits in general? Yeah, well, I don't, I think one thing that I would love to spend a few minutes talking about is the Groundbreak Coalition, which Please. the McKnight Foundation has been deeply involved in. Let's talk about it. Okay, well, let me just tell you. So the McKnight Foundation, along with several other partners, financial institutions, corporations, nonprofits, philanthropy, and government, pulled together and said, like, we see these racial, we see these economic disparities, and it really shows up across racial lines in our town. How do we address that? And one of the things that we learned is that most of the people, we have lots of programs, lots of people who are working on trying to build wealth or to buy homes or to start businesses, but what they didn't have was access to capital. So what we try to do was to solve that problem. And what's so unique about the Groundbreak Coalition, it isn't about establishing a organization or even a fund. It's really about trying to figure out how to do fundamental change across the board in the financial system. So it basically asks the financial institutions like the McKnight Foundation that has access to capital to stop um, making the burden, putting the burden on the borrower. Let's put the burden on ourselves to reorganize the way that we use and, and deploy our capital. So we basically put together a really unique financial system that has equity involved in it, the most competitive rates around debt. We have guarantees and we also have low cost and patient capital that are working in conjunction with each other at a high level scale that actually will allow us to try and close some of those gaps we see. So we believe in 10 years that we could cl close that um, white, black home ownership gap by 50%. Now, that's pretty impressive considering we're talking about 7,000 new homeowners in our region. So we look at scale in each of those areas. Same thing with businesses. We want, you know, the percentage of people of color in it to be commensurate with the number of businesses that are be being started in our region. Again, economic growth, about fairness, it's about justice, it's about creating communities where everyone can thrive. And that's um, for everyone. We want white families to thrive. We want Asian families to thrive. We want Black families to thrive and everyone else, Indigenous folks too. So that's our goal and ambition behind this work. And 
the last thing I would just say is you uh, know this, but in November, we were able to announce that we raised a nearly a billion dollars in commitments to be able to execute against this. And this year, we're really working to stand these models and these um, financial platforms up um, because we believe not only will it make a difference in the Twin Cities, but once executed effectively, we believe it'll be a model for the country. So we're very excited and very proud of that work because we're doing it together with deep ownership across multi-sectors. Well, I think what's interesting about it is, one, you have this collaborative effort going on between public, private, corporate, nonprofit, all working together to solve a community-wide problem, which really speaks highly of, of, of the effort uh, in many, many ways. In LA, there is a group of business people that got together and are mentoring Latino and Black family businesses and young businessmen to help them because they don't have their own CEO groups that they do with a, you know, if you're a white corporate guy, you have a CEO group you can right. join in. You're in YPO or something like you know, that. Yeah. that. And I'm actually starting a very similar project in the nonprofit sector where I'm going to, uh, beginning in April, we're starting a 13-month program for nonprofit executives and development directors to bond together, bring their problems together as a group, meet every month in person. And it's a curriculum, everything from conflict resolution to budget and budget and finance to you name it is part of that curriculum because they don't have that. If you're a nonprofit executive running a nonprofit or you moved up to be an executive, you don't have a lot of support around you except your board and they're looking for results. <laughs> as well, yeah, it's hard. There's not a lot of really good professional development for a nonprofit organizations. And particularly as we're kind of going into this kind of um, great retirement phase in the nonprofit sector where lots of people who have been here and worked for a really long time are now retiring out of the sector. So we got younger, more diverse leaders stepping up. And to your point, we have not done a great job of preparing them. So I appreciate the work that you're doing to do to help them and support them, Gary. I actually had a call from a recruiting firm about a week ago, a very big one on the West Coast here saying, Gary, I you got to apply for this position. And I'm going, well, I'm not, I like my consulting practice. I don't want to work full-time anymore, but they really need someone of your caliber. I'm going, well, you know, what are the things? I was going to pay three and a quarter and all that. I go, but I don't want to work full-time. I finally had a long talk with myself, my partner. We're going to get married this summer, hopefully. And, and my brother, who I've still, and my twin, we advise each other from time to time. He said, why would you want to go take a full-time job again? <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I work till about two o'clock. I enjoy myself. If it's sunny and warm, I'll go to Malibu for lunch. You know, it's all good. Let me. Uh, so I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to make me jealous because, you know, <laughs> I'm from Minneapolis where the degree, you know, it's yeah. like zero degrees. You don't have to rub it in. Gary, I, 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 have did, to work. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> uh, let me uh, ask you a final question. You know, so you, you're really working full time in a big operation. What do you do for fun on your own? I mean, you know, what do you like to do? Oh, that's a great question. I love to do a couple of things. I love to travel. I love to host dinner parties. So like, I love to bring people together just to be, to see each other humanity. And I like to do that with like diverse groups, like people that I wouldn't normally, you know, people that would not normally spend time in the same room, people that would not normally have the same political views. I love to bring them together so that first they see humanity. 
And then they can begin to have conversations, which we describe, you know, Dr. John Powell talks about out of Berkeley. This is bridging work. And for us at the McKnight Foundation, it's big tent work. And so I'm super passionate about that because I have seen amazing leaders be so divided based on assumptions about each other before they even ever had a conversation. And that when you can craft and figure out how to build relationship and have the bridging conversations, that you can actually make a lot of progress together. I've seen great success. That old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover, but people still try to. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, but I think we have to create more of that. So that's why I love to do dinner parties. It's Great. just kind of like my way of um, care and loving uh, the people that are around me. That's wonderful. And what about music and the arts? Are you involved in that in any way or? Yeah, I, well, of course, I love the arts and I'm a, a, co- a art collector. So I spend a lot of time looking around for those amazing pieces. And my husband is actually, we own a entertainment business that does production for comedy and music and jazz and all kinds of things. So yeah, I get to uh, dibble and dabble there too. When we get offline, I'll tell you about a a couple that you should see their documentary on art. So it's pretty fascinating. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. It's really wonderful to have you on and learn so much about the McKnight Foundation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. I really appreciate the platform and opportunity to talk about our work. Terrific. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.